This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, CIIS faculty Zara Zimbardo explores what we can learn from zombies. This talk was recorded in front of a live audience in San Francisco on December 1st, 2016. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight, and thank you to Public Programs for inviting me to speak. So we live in a time when apocalyptic narratives circulate very thickly. We can probably all close our eyes and see different illustrations and scenarios of the end of the world, whether that comes from religious prophecies of the end of days, Hollywood blockbusters, or grim ecological forecasts. As the postmodern theorist Frederick Jameson said, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. In this vein, we might also say that it is easier to imagine the zombie apocalypse than to imagine the end of capitalism. With the initials ZZ, I've gone through life with people trying to attach different Z things to me, and with an interest in zombies, finally found my match. I got very curious about this bizarre normalization of the zombie apocalypse in pop culture some years ago, and was tracking instances of where it arose in media, but also offline. And people would send me things like, oh, did you hear about the zombie version of a Christmas carol or a zombie Easter party or a zombie pub crawl? Um, And started to uh, collect these and question what is going on with this normalization of this very severe fantasy. And so I had the wonderful opportunity to really dive into this curiosity um, and to research interdisciplinary fields of zombie scholarship uh, through the invitation to write a couple different book chapters. And so tonight's presentation is really bringing together perspectives from dozens of different scholars and critical uh, cultural critics as well as perspectives from dozens of conversations. Zombies, as you may or may not have noticed, are everywhere. (laughs) Ubiquitous in popular culture, in colloquial speech, such as when someone says, oh, I was staring at a screen all day, I feel like a zombie. Zombies are an epidemic metaphor to refer to zombification from the mundane to the spectacular. The looming specter of the zombie apocalypse in recent years has surged in a huge way in the collective imagination and covered the media landscape in film, television, novels and comics, zombie comedies, zom rom-coms, video games and endless homemade productions, internet applications and electronic media, 
While zombies have also shambled off-screen into theme parties and global public performances, educational curricula from elementary to college levels, shooting target companies, survivalist groups preparing for the end of days across the United States, and training manuals by the Center for Disease Control, private security corporations, and counterterrorism scenario planning by the United States military. The zombie has become so prevalent in our culture today that it certainly seems as if it has begun to stalk us in our waking life as well. Tongue-in-cheek zombie outbreak preparedness trainings are advertised as imparting real emergency skills for a fake apocalypse, offering transferable skill sets for natural and unnatural disasters. A mock serious tone pervades zombie apocalypse warnings. Yet what does it mean when the CDC and the U.S. military get into the act? What are we incessantly joking, not joking about? As millions of people regularly enter into this mass fantasy via various routes, we are led back to ourselves. People of all ages are prompted to ask themselves and each other, what would you do in the zombie apocalypse? Repeatedly projecting ourselves into near-future dystopian scenarios of survival horror. The inexorable onslaught of zombie hordes represent the end of civilization as we know it, the total breakdown of human society, and the cannibalization of humanity. The explosive growth over the past decade plus of zombie apocalypse popularity functions as a dominant mythology of our time, a code for talking about the world and perhaps a way to speak about the unspeakable. Focusing on why monster stories are one of the dominant allegorical narratives used to explore economic life in the United States takes us underneath the macabre aesthetics, campy dramatizations, and ironic brain-eating commentary or commentary on zombies' uh, talent for disturbing graveyard landscaping. As a recurrent monster in the history of capitalism, what does this bizarrely normalized pop culture obsession point to in the non-human condition of living death? A drastic fantasy for drastic times, the zombie apocalypse offers a severe way out. And a question that I'd like to pose is what apocalyptic futures are we repeatedly rehearsing? through this fantasy of the zombie apocalypse, and how do they signal both despair of and hope for fundamental change? And so examining representations in popular culture uh, and drawing out historical connections, we're going to go on a journey through history to come to the present with new eyes. Um, helps us see how we, in the United States in particular, are processing and making sense of systemic social and environmental nonfiction horror. I want to start with an operating assumption that monster stories can always tell us something meaningful about the societies they come from. They oftentimes embody the cultural anxieties or fears or obsessions of a given time. Um, and can function as the political unconscious, in this case, the political unconscious of a very powerful and troubled country, the United States, an empire in decline. 
And so this is another question, is what fears do monsters embody in a given age and what are they embodying now? To which there are many answers. Cultures also frequently employ an iconography of death to deal with moments of rapid social change. And so to take this seriously, what are the stories that our country is telling itself? The term, the word monster itself derives from the Latin monere, which means an omen or warning. And so what warnings or omens do approaching hordes of reanimated corpses signal to the living? As countless masses stumble towards us, a groaning, shuffling onslaught that raises buried histories, reflects dimensions of the present, and points to a future of certain destruction and uncertain possibility to restart human, human civilization. While initially zombie movies shocked audiences with their unfamiliar images, today they are even more shocking because of their familiarity. This, I would argue that this normalized familiarity, alternating between laughable brain-eating horror and renewed power to terrify in different media genres, needs to be rendered shocking. Annalee Newitz, in her book, Pretend We're Dead, Capitalist uh, Monsters in American Pop Culture, argues that allegorical monsters of the modern age acting out with their broken bodies and minds, the conflicts that rip our social apart, our social fabric apart. Audiences taking in a monster story aren't horrified by the creature's otherness, but by its uncanny resemblance to ourselves. Many argue that American history can best be understood through America's monsters, which emerge out of central anxieties and obsessions that have been a part of the United States from colonial times to the present and from the structures and processes where those obsessions found historical expression. For nearly 200 years, specific imageries of horror, dissection, body snatching, dismemberment, and blood sucking have haunted the popular imagination, hinting at a profound sense of corporeal vulnerability intrinsic to modern life. And today, in the context of a global economic slump, persistent wars, and worsening environmental crises, many of these imaginaries have taken on an apocalyptic hue. The sociologist uh, Avery Gordon has observed in her work on haunting that haunting is one way in which abusive systems of power make themselves known and their impacts felt in everyday life, especially when they are supposedly over and done with, such as slavery, or when their oppressive nature is denied, as in free labor or natural, national security. Many also argue that failing to acknowledge monsters is part of the act of creating them. And so as anthropologists of popular culture and of US empire, I invite us to this evening interrogate the work of zombie hordes, which serve as an endless rehearsal of the end. The variations of the contemporary evolution of the zombie apocalypse are worth taking seriously as this dominant mythology of our time and to ask, what are we talking about when we talk about zombies? 
One view may be to see the high tide of this pop culture trend as a distraction from urgent issues or escapism into scenarios where survivors repeatedly confront the inescapable. However, I would argue that shambling zombies and the apocalypse that they always bring with them provide a forum for speaking about what might be psychologically indigestible or censored in public discourse. Immersion in prolific undead fiction can steer us to nonfiction that is repressed or blocked from view. And so we will be looking at what the zombie metaphor has meant in the past and considering why it continues to be so prevalent in our culture. The zombie is historically tied to and has been read alongside the expansion of global capitalism and the myriad anxieties associated with what is monstrous in an economic system that seems designed to eat people whole. They vividly represent the human face of capitalist monstrosity and as the embodiment of flesh-eating systems of capital itself, heartless and insatiable, indifferent to human costs. The doomsday fascination with the zombie apocalypse surged in the first decade of the new millennium. Popular infatuation with the undead reached new heights with the 2008 global economic crisis. Zombies' blood-splattered mark on mass culture became so clear during 2008-2009 that Time magazine declared zombies the official monster of the recession. Economist Paul Krugman labels zombie economics and zombie ideologies to refer to policy ideas of the living dead, defined as an idea that should have died long ago in the face of evidence that undermines its basic premise, but somehow keeps shambling along. No amount of logic can kill it. Zombies as threat and as comedy overlap as monstrous placeholders for our society to release and rehearse fundamental tensions. The zombie apocalypse may speak to some of the most puzzling elements of our socio-historical moment, wherein many are trying to ascertain what lies in store for humanity after global capitalism, if anything. In the excellent piece, A Zombie Manifesto, The Non-Human Condition in the Era of Advanced Capitalism, Sarah Juliet Lauro and Karen Embry note that the ubiquitous zombie is a pessimistic but appropriate stand-in for our current moment and specifically for America in a global economy where we feed off the products of the rest of the planet and alienated from our own humanity stumble forward, groping for immortality even as we decompose. We can pose the question, is the zombie apocalypse what we are collectively imagining or what we are collectively seeing? As it symbolizes for many Americans the current state of our society and facilitates imagination of its eventual dissolution. The blank and dead visage of the zombie serves as a screen onto which perpetually shifting meanings can be cast. A monstrous tabula rasa whose enduring ability to materialize our shifting fears and anxieties can serve to mobilize historically contingent critique. Citing the sheer volume of zombie narratives in media, 
as indicative of something more compelling and substantial than a superficial trend. Scholars have observed that zombie cinema is among the most culturally revealing and resonant fictions of the recent decade of unrest. The most telling barometer of the modern age is to be found in the unstoppable hordes of the zombie invasion narrative. Normalized post-apocalyptic landscapes and reflection of present nonfiction apocalyptic realities serve to process systemic social and environmental horror, economic crisis, and decay. In this sense, the specter of mindless, reanimated corpses and the total societal breakdown they represent simultaneously operate to embody realistic imaginations of the near future and to describe current conditions. Often alternating between ironic humor and renewed power to terrify, diverse zombie fiction functions, functions to bring apocalyptic anxieties intimately close while holding them at bay. They are the monster that keeps returning. Unlike iconic Hollywood monsters such as werewolves and vampires that have their roots in European folkloric traditions and had a literary tradition behind them before uh, getting into film, the zombie is a distinctly new world monster which went directly from folklore to the screen. Its origins are in Haiti, where through the transatlantic slave trade, beliefs coming from West Africa and lower Congo regions in a zombie figure was understood to be ways that a spirit could be trapped in between worlds in a liminal space that wasn't living or dead or could be perhaps trapped within a container. And this belief took root in voodoo spirituality. The image of the zombie transmuted to uh, speak to the horrors of slavery, which ripped people from their communities and reduced them to laboring flesh for sale. Caught between worlds and in a condition that was considered to be living death. Under the French occupation of Haiti, once the largest slave economy, this image was transmuted to emphasize a lack of personhood and endless plantation labor. French plantation masters would use the figure of the zombie as a form of social control to prevent enslaved Haitians from committing suicide as a form of escape, saying that if you commit suicide, you'll be a zombie forever trapped in this world, unable to get to the afterlife and condemned to endless plantation toil. It was understood that salt was the flavor that could bring a zombified person back to their state and regain their soul. And zombie, so zombism was as, uh, was believed and in some ways practiced was understood to be a form of hypnosis where someone under the control of a practitioner or zombie master was rendered a docile husk carrying out someone else's will. Zombie legends acquired their modern form during the US occupation of Haiti between 1915 and 1934 
when U.S. Marines brutally deployed forced labor to build infrastructure, renewing the trope of the master who controls the animated dead. And this view of the living dead, which entered the American culture industry in the 1930s and 40s, carried a critical charge. The notion that capitalist society zombifies workers, reducing them to interchangeable beasts of burden or mere bodies for the expenditure of later labor time. William Seabrook's 1929 novel, The Magic Island, laid the temple for the figure of the zombie to enter into American consciousness, describing voodoo practices of Haitian culture and eyewitness accounts, supposed eyewitness accounts, as described in the chapter, Dead Men Working in Cane Fields. Voodoo adherents could supposedly raise the dead for incessant toil. And zombie stories circulated as a key lens to make sense of the colonial relationship between the U.S. and Haiti, self and other, using sensationalistic and racist tropes projected onto Haitian culture. As zombie legends took root in the U.S., they expressed imperialist anxieties associated with colonialism and slavery, fears of racial mixing and specters of white people becoming dominated through zombification. Entering the American culture industry with films such as White Zombie and I Walked with a Zombie, the figure of the zombie may be understood in a post-colonial mode as they revealed more about Western fears than about Caribbean traditions and terrified Western viewers with the thing they likely dreaded most at the time, slave uprisings and reverse colonization. <clears throat> Annalie Newitz argues that stories about the undead are best understood in the context of anxieties about the many kinds of race relationships that develop in the wake of colonialism. The zombie's arrival in the U.S. was linked both with the system of slavery and slave rebellion, as the Haitian Revolution of 1804 demonstrated a historic challenge to colonial power structures. And while American audience could watch zombie films that depicted a superstitious other, the image of a zombified worker held up a monstrous mirror to the loss of autonomy and freedom at home, where workers found themselves employed as mass mechanized laborers reduced to pawns in larger productive systems that produced fight, frightening zombie-like conditions. The shuffling spectacle in films like White Zombie was a nightmare vision of the breadline, as millions already knew that they were no longer completely in control of their lives and the economic strings were being pulled by faceless, frightening forces. Between 1930s and the 1960s, zombie fiction served to depict a range of different masters, from aliens to communists to mad scientists, all of whom wielded zombifying control. George A. Romero is credited with the permanent single-handed redirection of the zombie narrative in his 1968 Night of the Living Dead, where he did away with the puppet master <laughs> and zombism, once considered a reversible state of hypnosis and control, was now a viral infectious disease that was passed through uh, actual bites 
and turned people into reanimated corpses that reproduced themselves through flesh-eating infection. He also bestowed on zombies their one weakness, which is a stab or a shot into the head, all of which has endured to the present day. Night of the Living Dead was based on a template from the 1954 I Am Legend, in which a, um, which was nine years after the dropping of nuclear bombs, and it was a vision of human extinction where a mutated majority confronts a tiny human minority who then has to confront its own mutated humanity in the process. And this really set the template for the apocalypse, the zombie apocalypse. And so with Romero's enduring innovation, he took them and made them us as this new type of zombie was born. And cannibalism, once projected outwards onto the colonized other, was turned inwards as a new society comes in and literally devours the old. The first film took place in a Pennsylvania uh, farmhouse. And here we have the survivors barricaded up as they watch the news, holding on for shreds of rationality as the national catastrophe escalates outside. His second film, Dawn of the Dead in 1978, in contrast, took place in the newly emerged structure of the shopping mall. And so this was also a detachment from the earlier signification of the zombie laborer and the birth of the zombie consumer, which both consumes human flesh and produces more consumers. Embodying the hungry gaze that capitalism directs towards humans and commodities, this recast zombie satirizes a consumer system collapsing under its own excess. And so profound truths about the world of late capitalism lie at this junction of the two images of the zombie laborer and the zombie consumer. In the words of political science professor David McNally, Taken together, they define the zombie economy of late capitalism, an out-of-control, flesh-eating machinery of manic accumulation and exploitation that has become an end in itself, driven ever onward towards what we all suspect will be a nightmare ending, a desolated post-apocalyptic world of rotting factories, environmental destruction, marauding armies, and dying cities. He also reminds us in his research in his book, Monsters of the Market, which traces the rise of zombie and vampire media and stories in sub-Saharan Africa, following the structural adjustment programs of the 1980s and 90s, that the critical image of the zombie laborer has re-arisen in sub-Saharan Africa in this neoliberal era saying that throughout the African subcontinent, the figure of the zombie labor has come to depict the dirty secret of late capitalism, that rather than a high-tech world of frictionless circuits and accumulation, capitalism continues to subsist on hidden sites of sweated labor.
In Dawn of the Dead, when the survivors are looking at the horror unfolding within the mall, one of them says, what the hell are they? And another asks, answers, they're us. That's all. And so the zombie apocalypse stops the machine, but we see how the machine lingers on in the survivors and how zombies in this incarnation are acting out of these empty habits of shopping. There's also a theological footnote that comes up in this um, film saying that when hell is full, that the undead will roam the earth. And so normal, everyday surroundings are altered, with once secure sites becoming claustrophobic, barricaded fortresses susceptible to imminent invasion. The primary details in Romero's series of zombie films are, in essence, bland and ordinary, implying that such extraordinary events could happen to anyone, anywhere, at any time. Catastrophe and capitalist monstrosity are shown to inhabit the intimate, mundane, and the everyday. In the popular zombie walks, which originated in North America in 2001 and have since become a global phenomenon, Participants dress up as specific occupations and pastimes, such as zombie grooms and brides, cheerleaders, doctors, just as Romero depicted in his series, wearing the costumes of one's former self, a reminder that we are you. Not a supernatural monster or alien from outer space, zombies terrify us not because of their otherness, but because they are truly human. The modern zombie cycle with the Night of the Living Dead began on the eve of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, when images of death, violence, and dismemberment were broadcast regularly in what became known as the Living Room War. Screened at the Museum of Modern Art, a review stated that Americans identified with the film's most shocking suggestion that death is random and without purpose, no one dies for the greater good or to further the survival of others. Instead, people die to feed faceless, ordinary America. America in zombie cinema is shown to be literally devouring itself from the time of the Vietnam War to the present day. Like other body-snatching and blood-sucking creatures, Zombies serve a dual function of terrifying and edifying us by exposing some disavowed truth about the world or about ourselves. Whether the eviscerated body on the evening news during the Vietnam War or the mindless consumption of goods in late capitalist society, the zombie has frequently embodied our sociopolitical ethical shortcomings. In response to the public outrage of U.S. military torture of Iraqis, former President Bush stated, the United States does not torture. It's against our laws and against our values. <clears throat> the zombie apocalypse arguably haunts America's post-9-11 consciousness. As the lesson from the Vietnam War was learned that showing images of flag-draped coffins of soldiers returning and showing images of the effects of our bombing campaigns eroded 
public support for war, there has been a journalism ban on showing these types of images with the war on terror. And in this time, zombies have arisen in greater numbers than ever before. As, it, as zombie media graphically depicts, violent domination at home as violent occupation abroad is abstractly justified as spreading freedom and democracy. While the viral zombie of contagion narrative implicates everyone, the representation of the racialized other endures. As the powerful have long marked oppressed populations as savage, frightening, and killable without guilt, in the common visual trope of the killable horde, zombies of the film industry point to the fictionalized embodiments of the actual human multitudes that are deemed killable and ungrievable across the world. And this necessitates a critical reading of familiarized images of us and them in the drifting, expanding, overt and covert military operations towards who is currently deemed a threat in a time of mass uprisings, food riots, upheaval, and migration. This is an image from the film World War Z. Zombie Industries sells shooting targets of zombie characters with bleeding torsos that can be repeatedly shot, and targets have included zombie President Obama, zombie Osama bin Laden, a zombie gun control advocate, Given that zombies function as the ultimate killable once human, even if it was your loved one or your mother, once they turn, it's kill or be killed, which is a core part of the psychological horror and what to do with loyalty to infected loved ones. Given that zombies function as this other, it is crucial to pay attention to how the political category of zombies is wielded and by whom who are deemed not truly human, not fully alive, and thus monsters, undeserving of respect or protection. As the zombie has become a cultural icon spawning countless iterations, some scholars have cited the military as the ultimate zombie master, which trains soldiers to dehumanize themselves when in combat and whose subjects are terrorized by the actions of a dehumanized combatant. A recurring inquiry in zombie fiction is the human cost at which security is gained in militarized survival. With the immense video game culture industry, zombie survival horror games offer some type of pleasure found in violating social norms without fear or reprisal. Video game zombies functions as ideal antagonists. As zombies, they are strong, relentless, and already dead. And players do not need to reflect on any ethical gray zone about the humanity of the undead, as the West can conceive of itself of engaged in extermination of those not considered human. And this, it's worth noting that this first-person shooter rehearsal of zombie extermination with increasingly realistic graphic representation coincides with an era in which U.S. warfare appears more and more like video gaming. In a recent talk 
someone asked Professor Noam Chomsky what he thought about the cultural preoccupation with zombies and the zombie apocalypse. And while he at first said, well, I haven't really seen any data or studies on the actual existence of zombies, he then went on to say that America is an unusually frightened country and this fear is critical to dig into. And that fear in the United States is an interesting phenomenon which goes back to the colonies with the sub-theme that an enemy that's going to destroy us is someone we're oppressing. And then he went on to go back to the early years of settlers and uh, the violent expansion of the West um, against the Native Americans. Numerous film scholars have noted this parallel mirroring of the cinematographic blocking of the standard zombie attack in Hollywood's long-standing depiction, with Hollywood's long-standing depiction of Indian attacks in Westerns, with a representational formula of the savage other who attacks the white heroes who circle wagons and shoot them dead. Some heroes are wounded, but the attack is repelled, and the attackers are not completely vanquished. Native studies scholar Kucha Rizling Baldi flips this script and this narrative to explain her use of the show The Walking Dead, which is the most watched drama in basic cable history. Her use of this television series to teach Native studies course, courses and elucidate intergenerational trauma of genocide from organized militias hunting Indians. As she says, Californian Indians often refer to the mission system and the California gold rush as the end of the world. What those survived experienced was both the apocalypse and the post-apocalypse. It was nothing short of zombies running around trying to kill them. She draws out the haunting question that arises multiple times in the series. Do you think we can come back from this? When our ancestors were sitting together, talking, trying to figure out how to survive this end of the world, they must have said to each other, do you think we can come back from this? And she points out that the figure of Carl, who is the young boy in the series who we see grow up within the zombie apocalypse into adolescence, saying, Carl was my great-grandfather. There is an internet joke that all zombie movies begin with a man in a white lab coat assuring us that everything is under control <laughs> as things quickly spiral out of control. Satirist Andy Borowitz, during the initial Ebola crisis, noted, I don't usually go in for conspiracy theories, but I believe that Ebola is a plot by a virus to prove that our government agencies are incompetent and our media idiotic. And indeed, this is what different strains of the zombie virus achieve in revealing to us time and time again. Whether the origins of the virus are attributed to vague extraterrestrial origins, hazy pseudoscientific mistakes, a wonder drug gone spectacularly wrong, or evil government machinations, the rapid effects of societal collapse are consistent staples of the genre. And it's 
strange that zombies who have the cultural identity as the slowest of monsters are able to bring about entire collapse of every single societal structure with uncanny speed. As zombie movies are almost always set during or shortly after the outbreak and all established infrastructures cease to exist or crumble quickly amid scenes of disorder. Law enforcement, government, communications, and electrical power systems cannot be relied on, which force survivors to dive into deep reservoirs of reliance and resilience. The embodied virus wrecks havoc on every institution humans have ever built. The early modern paradigm of the human condition had a permanent place for the plague, with anxieties of collapse of familial, governmental, and sacred institutions, all of which are essential elements present in the history of plague narratives and in modern zombie cinema. As zombie-wrought chaos metastasizes across the planet, it sends the repeated message that no one is in charge of the world any longer. And this social realistic vision of viral outbreak, whose aggressive spread quickly overwhelms health, justice, and military apparatuses, results in a rapid social breakdown so that only small pockets of survivors remain, which serves as a recurring waking nightmare. The extremes of paranoid infection and body panics reach biomedical climax in zombie outbreaks. The mysterious zombie infection can be microbial, parasitic, fungal, from the cordyceps fungus that uses us as a host, or even spreading via a language mutation, as in the film Pontypool. Zombiedom is defined as an inherently biological state of being, an infection that needs various periods of incubation. Drawing on early 21st century fears of a global pandemic, Biologizing the zombie reinforces its relation to infectious, microscopic life and the speed with which a globalized economy accelerates its travel. We witness a fierce hope to maintain a grip on scientific rationality, as if the explanation will lead to the cure, to a justification, shreds of meaning, to an anchor of sanity. Central to this obsession with attempts to understand the difference between our brains and zombie brains, uh, Dr. Edwin Jenner at the Center for Disease Control in The Walking Dead shows the group of survivors a recording of brain scans from someone named Test Subject 19 during infection, death, and then zombified regeneration. We see synapses alight throughout the brain, then the frontal cortex is destroyed with a spreading darkness as the virus attacks and the body dies and memory, identity, and feeling are gone, wipes blank and depersonalized. He then shows TS-19's resurrection. It restarts the brain, a watcher asks. Just the brainstem, he corrects. The human part, the you part, that doesn't come back. And so the living are understood to be tissue with memory. A recurring theme of total disintegration of the consumer-based economic system 
as a necessary prerequisite for new growth does not immediately translate into optimism about that new growth. Attempts to rebuild the social order may be as problematic as what they replace. Hierarchies, gender divisions of labor, sociopathic community leaders. As zombies become more and more knowable and easy to handle, it is humans who become more unpredictable and truly terrifying. Collective thought experiments of a near future world left with a fraction of the human population covered with decaying swarms of the undead raise ethical, philosophical, and existential questions. With its common refrain of what would you do in this scenario, the zombie genre compels reflection on oneself as we witness human actors confront hellish choices. What would one do to survive? What unimaginable sacrifices might one have to make? Would I still be me? What holds humans together without familiar societal structures? Will we retain our humanity in the face of the engulfing undead? Will I cannibalize or kill my loved ones? How will I find anything without GPS tracking on my cell phone? What does single tasking look like? What would it feel like to walk through empty, silent urban landscapes? The zombie apocalypse is a glimpse of a radical, violent renewal of the social order, clearing the old to make way for the new. It can be thought of as a massive control-alt-delete. And so we are talking about biological, uncontainable infection, but we also live at a time of things going viral. And in films such as 28 Days Later and World War Z, where zombie swarms move at speeds impossible to battle, this may speak to, speak to rapid rates of global infection, whether a biological pandemic or computer viruses that can travel the world in superhuman time, such as in 2002, the I Love You computer virus, which infected over 50 million computers within 10 days. And so the zombie's undying power as a monstrous mirror continues to satisfy a role for which it has been well-suited since its inception to serve as an abstract thought experiment, projected at first into religion, folklore, and then eventually into film, fiction, visual arts, and electronic media for meditation on what it means to be human and now particularly amidst shifting notions of identity in the internet age. A shambling, rotting corpse with no detectable intelligence and barely able to negotiate a set of stairs, let alone a single tool, seems to be a bizarre, iconic villain for a millennial, technologically savvy, fast-paced generation. While films of robotic uprisings, sentient machines, and artificial intelligence provide a form to reflect on our techno-digital environment, zombie hordes represent the eradication of our off and online selves. As many people refer to themselves as zombies staring at screens, waiting for pages to load, deleting thousands of emails, or to describe the way that groups of people look while on their short digital leashes of their handheld devices, there is also a mundane dimension to digital zombification. It's interesting to note that their decaying physicality 
is an antithesis of the virtual cyborgian body and the singular unthinking drive, the opposite of the networked multitasking self. Zombie and cyborg cinema offer two different escapes from current conditions, the breakdown of technology and the complete integration and assimilation into technology. As millions inhabit virtual realms, the figure of the zombie haunts the evolved cyborgian self-image of disembodied consciousness, forcing engagement with bodies whose nervous systems are wiped blank, left only with a biologically amputated brainstem and a singular unthinking drive. Uh, scholar Martin Rogers provocatively argues that in the post-human world, the horror-sci-fi hybrid will visualize these transformational anxieties, just as soldiers experience sensations from limbs long since amputated, the human body amputated from its biological consciousness will haunt the living information of self-aware technology. In the book, World War Z, An Oral History of the Zombie War, author Max Brooks paints a future portrait. In the new post-plague world order, practical survival skills eclipse the more rarefied expertise associated with a sophisticated but highly fragile information-based society found in developed nations before the war. Zombies function as a physical shadow of the information era and the apocalypse they wreck on a society dependent on digital infrastructure is the specter of total unplugging. No longer networked, what are we connected to? There are no selfies in the zombie apocalypse, no way to send updates on our latest activities. And this is all part of this survivalist fantasy that finds a lot of expression offline. When the dead rule the world, we will finally start living, is written on the back of every graphic novel, novel of the Walking Dead series, informing readers that the world of commerce and frivolous necessity has been replaced by a world of survival and responsibility. And this theme of being forced to start living, forced to go outside to forage for basic necessities reveals another core dimension of this collective rehearsal of the future. On one level, a mass hunter-gatherer fantasy, <laughs> its socio-historical popularity is significant at a time of unbridled corporate monopolies and seemingly inescapable privatization. Zombie fiction might embody our fear of loss of identity, even while the global zombie apocalypse continues to serve as this crucible for heroism and survival skills and a testing ground for human values. So zombie apocalypse landscapes show us images of destruction and regeneration as the earth starts to take things back and we see a rewilding of the human environment, which is an interesting overlap between dystopian and utopian visions of this rewilding and this peaceful decay with less humans and less human predation. 
The empty highway is an iconic image of the zombie apocalypse showing industrial society and our fossil fuel-based system frozen and ground to a complete halt. The term mass extinction is becoming commonplace in environmental reporting, forcing recognition of impacts on the planet that our zombie economy is rendering uninhabitable. We've never been here as a species, and the implications are truly dire and profound for our species and the rest of the living planet, relates a recent news article titled Mass Extinction, It's the End of the World as We Know It, which could be the implicit subtitle of modern zombie cinema. Debates rage whether we are at a point of no return, as grave climate change nightmares are already here with dire predictions for the future. Do you think we can come back from this is a question in the air. We see again and again camera shots of urban and suburban landscapes uh, slowly decaying and devoid of human population. In Zombieland and The Walking Dead, characters on a foraging run, the now familiar routine of life-risking search through depopulated ruins to find supplies, have revelatory moments confessing to themselves and each other, I miss the noise. Carol and Carl in The Walking Dead reflect on the chronologically close yet unbridgeably distant past, sharing how much in the olden days they used to long for peace and quiet in the landscape of the zombie apocalypse, they would give anything to hear the sounds of human activity, of planes, of a rescue plane. It is becoming increasingly apparent that the economy based on the violent extraction of fossil fuels, resources, and labor is on a collision course with the ecological limits of the life support systems of our planet. Zombie hordes again and again clear away an outmoded way of life and create a path for shifts previously unthinkable within the parameters of late capitalism. This catharsis via popular media may alternately enable a turning away from present conditions or act as a means to shatter denial regarding troubling forecasts that the ecological crisis is already feeding historic dynamics of militarism, entrenched corporate power, and the systems of racism and oppression that have haunted the human family for generations. Longing for radical change and perhaps despairing of its potential, the paradoxes of the zombie obsession point to entrenched hopelessness and profound desire at the heart of American empire. Alia Ahmed states that the Z generation popularity takes root in the zombie as a sign of an unsated cultural appetite in the global north for the type of radical transformations that a relatively affluent and politically complacent society cannot achieve. Radical transformations are, of course, occurring with the destabilization of the climate, mass upheaval, spreading dead zones in the ocean due to chemical runoff and acidification, desertification, and biblical floods. Our lifetimes are witness to a slow-motion apocalypse, a gradual unraveling of the routines, expectations, and institutions that comfort the privileged and define the status quo. 
which is a quote from Patrick Rainsborough and Doyle Canning, who are grassroots organizers. What has previously been invisible in global capitalism is now being seen in the natural environment. The term apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation, lifting a veil, or disclosure of knowledge, not just the end of the world as we know it. And so in terms of pulling aside a veil that shrouds soul-crushing and ecocidal business as usual, zombies' work is never done, it seems. As compost from our era starts to perhaps turn into fertile soil. So I just want to close with a few last comments, bringing us back to salt. <laughs> Over 40 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. predicted that a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. It may be argued that we have long since arrived at this point and that American empire has entered a state of spiritual undeath. Perhaps the zombie apocalypse is already here now, and this is it. What will anthropologists of future generations say about American culture's fixation on fighting zombies during this particular time? Imagining the world as we know it collapsing around us can give the opportunity to take a long look at what that dead word world values and to call it into question. As an insightful and revelatory allegory, allegory zombies both plague the living and reveal what plagues us. Blurring recent memories and real conditions of viral threats, different versions of the zombie pandemic tap into deep-seated fears of universal vulnerability while holding them at a fictional and sometimes comical distance. In an America anxious over the fate of the social order, the zombie offers a talisman, a laughably horrific symbol about a fake apocalypse that keeps at bay real fears about social degeneration and collapse. Journey to apocalyptic landscapes guide us home after the credits roll, able to see the nearness of this vision crawling through business as usual. Through zombie stories, we are not transported somewhere alien. We are just where we are, arguably non-futuristic. This recurring mass fantasy can signal both a failure of the imagination and a summoning of the depths of our imagination to confront apocalyptic nonfiction. In The Zombie Survival Guide, Max Brooks states, conventional warfare is useless against these creatures, as is conventional thought. And this might be one of the more apocalyptic optimistic readings of the zombie narrative is this forced enactment of unconventional thought and uh, salt of different ways of being outside of and within these monstrous systems that 
present a humanizing challenge to audiences to become more cooperative, altruistic, and self-reliant. And so these past and present meanings, metaphors, and allegories of the reanimated dead invite recognition of our monster fixation with a critical edge. Social justice may break the power of the monster, argues Scott Poole in his History of American Monsters, in its ability to alter the structures of history and society so that the terror of history recedes. Um, recent undead protests featuring crowds dressed as zombies hold up a monstrous mirror to economic systems that are devoid of consciousness and stumbling down a path of devastation. There was a fascinating proliferation of zombie demonstrations in response to the economic crash and age of austerity with marches of the undead during the Occupy movement, a zombie invasion of the New York Stock Exchange, hunger marches, and University of California students' rise of the living debt protest against tuition hikes and student debt. Embodying terrors of history and deadening social conditions, zombie rebellion calls for a destruction of reigning economic structures, a breakdown that may lead to possible breakthroughs. In her book, A Paradise Built in Hell, local author Rebecca Solnit documented how communities have recurrently risen to their best in times of catastrophe and offers a historian's intervention into the corporate media narrative that crises only bring out the worst in humans who readily devolve into savagery and selfishness. She reminds us that in disasters across North America throughout the 20th century, the loss of electrical power sometimes allowed residents of disaster-struck cities to see stars otherwise obscured by urban light pollution and writes, you can think of the current social order as something akin to this artificial light, another kind of power that fails in disaster. In its place appears a reversion to improvise, collaborative, cooperative, and local society. However beautiful the stars of a suddenly visible night sky, few nowadays could find their way by them. But the constellations of solidarity, altruism, and improvisation are within most of us and reappear at these times. People know what to do in a disaster. The loss of power, the disaster in the modern sense, is an affliction, but the reappearance of these old heavens is its opposite. So desperate times give rise to desperate fantasies, and the temporal gap between near-future dy dystopian fiction and the present continues to shrink. And clearly, we don't need really to create more fantasies to shock us awake. We only need to face realities that already exist of global survival horror. And so zombies are a monster that has kept returning in greater and greater numbers to horrify, horrify and reveal and to warn about the different effects of modern life and of monstrous systems. <laughs> You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. The audio engineer for this episode was Ramdas Khalsa. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. 